Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This week, for the first time in history, a U.S. president was impeached for a second time, a measure supported by 10 House Republicans. Today, in a bipartisan way, the House demonstrated that no one is above the law, not even the president of the United States. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Let me say this. It's no secret to anybody that I hope that this relationship will never become public. When I was alone with Ms. Lewinsky on certain occasions in early 1996 and once in early 1997, I engaged in conduct that was wrong. That was President Bill Clinton testifying before a grand jury about the events leading up to his impeachment back in 1998. But despite the history being made back then, the S&P rose almost 12% from then until he left office in early 2001. Markets similarly looked past President Trump's second impeachment this week, focusing instead on things like interest rates and proposed fiscal stimulus, things that Jillian Tad, chair of the Financial Times editorial board, says investors should be considering, that is, the possibility of a return on inflation. It's important to realize that there is quite a big zeitgeist shift underway right now. You can see that perhaps most clearly, not just in terms of the behavior of bond yields, nominal bond yields, but if you look at inflation-linked bonds in particular, they have been performing very well because investors have been buying them to hedge their portfolio. Now, on the face of it, that might seem absolutely peculiar because we've just had the consumer price price data come out this week, which shows that inflation pressure in December were incredibly muted. And there's very little wage growth. The level of economic growth is pretty weak, too, because of the pandemic. But there are really three key factors which are causing investors right now to think about inflation. 
The first is a chance that if you do have a big fiscal stimulus package from Joe Biden's incoming administration, and if that coincides with the pandemic vaccine gradually spreading across the country and reducing the pandemic fears, you could have those two factors coming together and create quite a big upsurge in growth later this year, which could coincide with supply chain bottlenecks because so much capacity has been knocked out by the pandemic. So what you could see is that prices, say for hotels or travel or leisure, suddenly jump up in a way that will skew the inflation data. Esther George, head of the Kansas Fed, spoke about this just this week. The second issue, which is equally important, is that many of the structural factors which have kept prices low in recent decades, most notably globalization and digitization, might just might be, if not reversed, but become less forceful in the decades ahead because, say, the demographics in China are changing. That's a much bigger debate, but it's very important to take note of that. The third issue, though, the really important issue is the Fed. And inverse assumptions of ultra-low inf in, um, inflation in recent years have been partly based around this idea that the Fed's 2% price target meant it would jump in and nip inflation pressures in the bud if they started to emerge. What's changed, though, are two things. Firstly, Fed officials are saying that 2% is now an average target, not a ceiling which means that they might be willing to let inflation rise above 2% for quite a long time. Secondly, there's an appreciation that the political economy pressures in the years ahead could make it incredibly hard for the Fed to act preemptively. In particular, as the debt burden explodes, it's going to be so hard for the Fed to do something, which is going to raise the debt servicing costs in the future. So that, in plain English, means the Fed may sit on its hands, which also means inflation could well be more of a risk than investors realize. And in part, could it be that the Fed wants to sit on its hands in this sense? Inflation, as you say, is still is relatively modest. At the same time, negative real yields, that is to say, the difference between the inflation rate and the zero, effectively zero interest rates, really have record negative real yields. Might that be actually a strategy to actually inflate our way in part out of that debt problem you just talked about? There's certainly a temptation um, for the Fed to sit on its hands in terms of running the economy hot and helping growth. Helping, it should also be said, in the eyes of some Fed officials, low-income um, communities as well. You know, the idea is if you have you know, a large amount of growth, then that will gently trickle down to poorer people. For what it's worth, I personally think that's a huge mistake because I think what the Fed's doing is raising, inflating the value of the assets that the rich hold and increasing income inequality. But in terms of trying to inflate yourself way out of a debt burden, yes, absolutely, there's a school of thinking in the investment community and the economics community that says that's probably the only way they're going to get out of that debt burden. If you look, go back to the years after World War II, you can see that some mild version of this was one of the reasons that the US and UK was able to um, exit from their massive debt burdens after World War II. The danger, though, is that if you do have inflation starting to come back as a significant threat and a perception that the Fed is not willing to act, you may then also see overseas investors start to become more nervous about holding US treasuries. And the problem with America is that at the end of the day, it is dependent on the kindness of strangers or the willingness of 
foreign investors to keep funding this exploding debt burden that the incoming administration is going to face. That was Wall Street Week contributor Jillian Tett of the Financial Times. Coming up, the role of social media in the attack on the Capitol and what could be done about it from former head of Homeland Security, Jay Johnson. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The Capitol may have been the target of the mob's attack last week, but Silicon Valley suffered its own collateral damage. Attention quickly focused on the role of social media in fomenting and even helping organize the insurrection, leading Facebook and Instagram to suspend President Trump's account at least until Inauguration Day. YouTube suspended his channel for at least one week, But the most severe action came from President Trump's platform of choice, Twitter. It permanently suspended his account, severing an instant line of communication to his 89 million followers. The events raise pressure to regulate content on tech platforms and adds to the debate over shielding social media companies from liability. Senator Lindsey Graham said in a tweet, I'm more determined than ever to strip Section 230 protections from big tech, Twitter, that let them be immune from lawsuits. The issue of false and even incendiary social media posts poses serious issues for our politics and for our security. According to Jay Johnson, he's former head of Homeland Security. I don't want to take any particular company to task, um, but social media, the ability to, um, to publish, push out fake news, extremist views, is frankly a large reason for why we are where we are today in our politics, in our domestic security situation. Something like 70% of Republicans, according to polls, believe that the election was stolen and that there was fraud in the election. Uh, I'm waiting to see the poll that uh, a certain percentage of Americans believe that last week's attack on the Capitol was the fault of Antifa, and there is absolutely no evidence of that. And so, you know, when you and I grew up, uh, there were conventional news sources from which we got all the same set of facts, out of which we'd form our own opinions about the Vietnam War and uh, the civil rights movement and the like. Now, because of social media, uh, because of this this information highway, people can go to sources of so-called news that do no more than reaffirm their own 
paranoias, their own biases, their own prejudices, and their own suspicions. And that has been uh, a big driver of the divisiveness and the ugliness in our politics for the last several years. Jay, at the same time, uh, is there a danger of overreacting? Uh, I mean, we've seen this sometimes in crises in this country where we react to the last problem we overreact. Let me give you a, a, a stark example. One person's uh, extreme expression might be another person's Arab Spring. I mean, social media Correct. is very important in Arab Spring. How do we protect our own homeland from, from the ills that could have come from social media without shutting down an Arab Spring? Excellent question, David. Um, very often, a crisis atmosphere is a poor atmosphere in which to make policy. Uh, I have been saying now for, for several years that government agencies, national security agencies, need to resist the, the political push or the impulse to dive into trying to regulate social media, political debate on the, on the Internet. Uh, think about what certain people in office today would do if they could deem something fake news and therefore impose government restrictions on the ability of, of the Internet to, 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 to repeat it. And so we've got to be careful when it comes to uh, government restrictions on political debate, political speech, which is why the action on President Trump's uh, accounts was extraordinary, but probably overdue, frankly. At the same time, I wonder if there's actually a positive good for law enforcement, national security authorities, of having an open web. That is to say, if really we do drive these people off of Twitter and Facebook and maybe even Parler, they might go to the dark web and it might be harder yes. for our national security forces to really monitor what they're up to. There is that offsetting concern. Um, very definitely um, the ability to monitor uh, extremist views, communications, plotting, terrorist plotting uh, is a valuable, valuable law enforcement tool. And, and you're correct. Very often when you prohibit something, you make it more difficult. Uh, you just drive it to another corner and law enforcement struggles to keep up. Going beyond social media, we have an inauguration coming up next week now. Uh, how do we make sure we don't have some sort of problem the way we did last week? I mean, what went wrong and what steps should be taken to really make sure we're secure on the Capitol? David, when I was Secretary of Homeland Security, I had the responsibility for the inauguration four years ago, for the security of the inauguration four years ago. Uh, in my time as Secretary, I also had the responsibility for the security of three State of the Union addresses and the U.S. Capitol, two presidential political conventions, uh, three U.N. General Assembly sessions, one papal visit. Uh, it can be done. There is something called an NSSE, National Special Security Event. Uh, the, the inauguration is an NSSE. Political conventions are NSSEs. And when you declare something an NSSE, uh, there's a certain level of security preparation that kicks in. And there's literally a checklist of things you go through to prevent any sort of penetration of the event from land, sea, air, and cyberspace. That failed to happen last week for reasons that we will learn at some point. Uh, those responsible for the security of last week's event in the Congress did not anticipate uh, the security challenges that they ended up facing. This could have been prohibited. We know how to protect the perimeter of the U.S. Capitol. 
not to be flip about this at all, Mr. Secretary, but do we know how to protect the security of the country from the president of the United States himself? I mean, there's a raging debate right now, as you know, in Washington about whether this man should remain in office. How concerned are you about that possibility? I am very concerned. Uh, our domestic security situation right now is very tense. It should be on, on high alert. David, the, the very, very sad fact is that uh, there exists in this country uh, a strand of racism, uh, intolerance, bigotry, uh, anti-Semitism that has for years existed under a rock. Uh, frankly, our, our political leaders, President Trump, has enabled that group, has emboldened that group by saying, you're special people, uh, you're good people. Uh, and basically allowed them to come out from under their rock. One of the things that I think is important now, and I'm glad to have this opportunity to talk to the business community, David, is that there are others involved in this who, frankly, aided and abetted this. There are people now who believe that by pandering to Trump's base, by pandering to this aspect of his base, it works to their own political benefit. And I think uh, the rest of us in this country need to push back on that and say, no, you don't. Don't try that. And the business community in particular, I believe, has a large voice in that. That was Jay Johnson of Paul Weiss. Coming up, whether or not markets cared about the impeachment, a lot of big corporations did, distancing themselves from the Trump brand and reining in their political contributions as fast as they could. Something David Rubenstein of the Carlyle Group says may be here to stay. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The Trump brand was at the heart of the president's business empire long before he turned to politics. And that brand is in crisis after the riot at the U.S. Capitol. He is being shunned by political donors, by tech companies, banks handling his finances, and even by Shopify, the company behind his online stores. Deutsche Bank reportedly decided not to conduct more business with President Trump or his family company. And Signature Bank announced it is closing two personal Trump accounts holding about $5 million. Even the game of golf, so dear to President Trump, has turned its back on him, with the PGA canceling plans to have its championship at his Bedminster Club in 2022, something Mr. Trump had long coveted. The fallout goes beyond President Trump and his company. Other companies like Amazon, American Express, Disney, and Walmart are withholding political contributions to lawmakers who voted last week to oppose the Electoral College results. In a recent Yale survey of 40 CEOs, 42% of them said businesses should halt all political donations. And several corporations have said they'll suspend all political contributions, at least for the time being. David Rubenstein has worked at the highest levels of corporate America for years now as co-founder and now co-executive chairman of the Carlyle Group. He explains what motivates corporations when it comes to politics and why things might change. Well, business leaders, by and large, want to run their companies. They're not looking for controversy. So they generally don't tend to be profiles encouraged, and I would include myself in that category. We generally are not trying to make waves when we're running companies. That's for political people to do and not for business leaders. But I think the business community has been um, scared a bit about where the country's going. And I think they're now trying to say, well, we want to be on the side of what's right for the country and we want to honor the Constitution and so forth. 
Uh, whether that's going to make a big difference or not in terms of whether the country comes together or not, I'm not sure. But there's no doubt that people are running away from President Trump, who were people who were pretty close to him uh, up until just recently. But uh, interestingly, is it running away from President Trump, the person, uh, which, I'm, of course, I'm sure is going on? Or might there be a funda more fundamental reform saying we need to think closely before we really get too close to any administration? Well, clearly they're running away from what President Trump uh, did in the last week or two or three or so in, in post-election. But I do think that they are all wor worried now that getting too close to politicians is a problem. And I think many of them are going to relook at their political donations and they want to avoid being criticized for things that they can't control. They can't control what politicians do. So uh, people make political contributions for various reasons. I think businesses are going to be more careful about what they do in the future and they don't really want controversy. One of the things that's striking to me, maybe not to you, is the extent to which the markets are not paying much attention to any of this, at least as far as I can tell. I can't discern it. We have a really history being made. First time in history a president will be impeached for the second time. Uh, what do you make of that as a practical matter? Is that right? Is that healthy? Is the way it should be? Well, businesses like to see predictability and markets want predictability. And I think the markets are pretty quick to figure out what's going to happen. They know that President Trump's going to be leaving office uh, they know that uh, the companies are going to do their business. And ultimately, the key thing to the economy is getting COVID under control. And I think from the business community's point of view, not having too many disruptive policies from the new administration. And I don't think they feel there's going to be many disruptive economic policies. So the administration um, it, that comes in is not going to be one that's going to be as favorable to business as the previous one. But I think the business community recognizes and the markets recognize that there's not going to be a lot of disruptive changes. As we saw through COVID and as we're seeing right now, the markets operate on their own uh, uh, kind of wavelength, and they're not—they didn't weren't as affected by by the by COVID as I thought they would have been, and they're not going to be as affected by what's going on today in Washington. I think they just shrug it off and look at what the earnings per share is going to be of various companies they care about. Uh, you're a veteran of Washington. You've been around Washington for quite a while, as have I, for that matter. Give us your perspective overall on what you're seeing happen right now. Unprecedented is an overused term. Certainly applies here. What do you make of it? The country's greatest stress ever was the Civil War. And I think the Great Depression was the second greatest stress we've ever had. I think we have two great stresses going on right now, not quite the Civil War, not quite the Depression. One is the COVID situation, which now seems to be getting worse rather than better, even though we have vaccines that are available. And second, the impeachment process now going on and the things related to January 6th. That's gonna scar our democracy for quite some time. The country has been through a real stress test the last few weeks, and I think we'll survive for sure, but there's no doubt that the political um, repercussions are gonna be great. I think the Democrats and Republicans are gonna be further divided than they've ever been. And I, whether President Trump is impeached or whether he's convicted, you're gonna have big divisions between uh, Democrats and Republicans for quite some time. So it's, it's gonna take a while for President-elect Biden to really be able to bring the both sides together in my view. That was David Rubenstein, co-executive chairman of the Carlyle Group and host of Peer to Peer on Bloomberg. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, 
and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We're going to conclude the week as we always do with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, I guess the really big issue this week for the economy was this $1.9 trillion stimulus package that was announced by President-elect Biden. You've been the Secretary of Treasury. You've been there when there was a huge package that you had to get out of Capitol Hill. Let me start with the most obvious question, perhaps. Where's the most bang for the buck? What is really going to make the most difference in the economy? This is probably the boldest economic proposal since the Great Society and perhaps the boldest economic proposal uh, since uh, the New Deal. One way to look at it is uh, this. In 2009, the incoming Obama administration proposed a fiscal plan that represented, filled perhaps 40% of the output gap. This plan would be perhaps three times as large as the output gap. So relative to the size of the economic problem, we're talking about something more than five times uh, as uh, large. And that reflects a conviction that's surely right that too little was done in 2008, but 2009, but five times is a lot. It also reflects a interesting and I think important desire to combine the macroeconomic element with the structural fairness uh, element. And so these would be historic reductions in uh, child poverty if achieved through uh, the child care credit. Um, I think that the most important pieces of this package are the reinforcement of the vaccination effort and the support for uh, state and local uh, governments. I think the question about uh, this package is going to be how the macroeconomics add up. And here, I think it's important to understand that this was probably as much an attempt to frame a debate that's going to come as it was a proposal to be implemented in its literal form. And so I don't think the right question is whether this package would overheat the economy. I think if it were passed as written, it would overheat uh, the economy. But will this shift the debate towards our doing more? Will this shift the debate uh, towards doing more for those who've been left behind? And I think there, uh, the answer is yes. But we are going to have to watch this economy very carefully. And I do think the conventional wisdom is underestimating the risks of hitting capacity. And if we do anything approaching this, we are going to be managing the economy with the accelerator more on the floor 
than at any time in peacetime uh, history. So, so, so Larry, you say it frames the debate. Do we have time for that debate? Does the economy have time for that debate? Because there's going to be, in all likelihood, a back and forth. It doesn't look like, as you suggest, the Republicans are just going to say yes. Some moderate Democrats might not say yes. If this takes three months or more, could there be longer term structural damage to the economy? Do we need some things done right now? I think the three, three or four months would be a long time. But I think that's why it's so important that uh, the incoming administration worked with uh, the, all the actors to get a $900 billion package passed uh, just a month ago. That $900 billion package in and of itself, given that it was all gonna run over three to six months, is far larger than the fiscal stimulus we had in 2008. And so I think this does give us a little bit of time to uh, work this out. The other concern I have is that I think the vice president was right, vice president, president-elect was right in his campaign to put so much emphasis on Build Back Better. And I'm worried that all the emphasis that's gonna flow to this is going to take energy, both political and economic and fiscal space, away from the fundamental investments in uh, infrastructure, in uh, the caring economy that we're going to need to really produce a durable solution uh, to uh, the problems. So this is a a bet that people are going to roll their own stimulus over multiple years by saving a significant part of the money they're going to be given and then being in a stronger economic position that drives demand for years to come. And it may be a bet that works out. It may be a bet that we only partially uh, take. But I think what anyone has to recognize is the breathtaking macroeconomic ambition um, that goes frankly beyond anything that's been contemplated since the Second World War in terms of uh, degree of fiscal stimulus. Larry, you mentioned the money going to be given to people. Part of this package is $1,400 more to individuals. That takes it up to that $2,000 magic number. We have talked about that before. You've expressed some skepticism whether it makes sense. We have various anecdotes about some people do need that money. Some people, frankly, don't. They've kept their jobs. They've kept their employment. Uh, do you believe that this may be a risk to this package, ironically one that may be more politically palatable, including to some Republicans? Look, I, by my lights, the $1,400 that would go to my children um, is not an attractive use of uh, public money. On the other hand, its universality serves to make it more attractive. And the authors of this package have put in a variety of other things that are tilted very much towards the poor, the refundable child uh, tax credit, for example. But I think we're saying the same thing, David, which is the risks here are on the side of, we're, of just doing so much on such a scale to give money to people in a way that isn't completely targeted 
that that may use up space that could have been used for much more fundamental and important investments. Uh, Larry, we'll be talking about this for some time to come, no doubt about it. Let's move on to another subject very much in the news this week, which is social media. Uh, a lot of scrutiny to social media, particularly in light of that, that attack, the insurrection really on Capitol Hill. What do you make of the various calls on social media to regulate itself and to exclude some of the entities that actually were communicating leading up to that attack? We're going to have to work this through as a society, just as they had to work it through when the printing press was invented, just as at the eve of television, there were a whole set of fairness uh, doctrines uh, and the like. Uh, my sense is that uh, the standards of what can be communicated is not a question that can be left only to corporate leaders. Hmm. And that corporate leaders are going to have to implement policies, but there's going to need to be a much clearer framework uh, provided uh, in law. And from my perspective, the more important questions are these questions and the questions about privacy relative to the antitrust and anti-monopoly questions that have gotten so much attention. And indeed, I worry that if you multiply the number of networks and you multiply the number of social media outlets, it might even make it harder to, to uh, interfere with the organization of insurrections. So I think that issue is right there in focus and it's an issue more for constitutional scholars than it is for economists. That law of unintended consequences. Let's conclude this week with a quick round of Summer Says. Three quick questions. Number one, we have an increasingly divided Republican Party. Is a divided Republican Party ultimately good or bad for the economy? Probably bad. I think that in general, when parties are able to cohere better, deals can be struck better and we can address problems more effectively. We also have an impeached president now. The first time in history, one president has been impeached a second time. The question is, what happens in the Senate? Is a conviction of Donald J. Trump in the Senate, even after he's left office, is that good or bad for the economy? I think it's probably good. I think it's probably good for the country because it will accelerate his uh, leaving our national life as a highly visible figure. But whether it's good enough to be worth the various costs of the process is something I'll leave to politicians to judge. And finally, Bitcoin, very much in the news, now back up, pushing against $40,000. Is it a bubble or not? I'm not going to predict its uh, fluctuations over the next uh, six months, but I think some institution like it uh, is uh, here to stay. I, I don't think that the whole thing is going to... Uh, collapse. I think that having run up and then run way down and then moved, moved back, it looks much more resilient. And therefore, I think uh, people are going to move towards it. And as people move towards it, given the finiteness of its supply, that's going to be a factor working to, to raise prices. Okay, Larry, thank you so very much. That special Wall Street Week contributor, Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary, and of course, of Harvard. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, 
the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.